this moment is awful. There's no question, but silver linings abound. We can create so much out of this moment. And I think for our own collective sense of agency as educators, teachers, principals, you know, we have to find active ways, not more Zoom calls, right? But really active ways to nourish ourselves and to connect with each other and to really think about this moment so that it, it could pass us by so easily because we're all so stressed and tired, you know? And it's like, we just, let's just get kids in school in September. But at the same time, if we really think about it, how much more work is it if we have to rebuild anyway to rebuild things back learning from our wisdom of practice in the past. My name is Rob Van Nood, and you're listening to the second season of Elevate, a podcast about big ideas, little projects, and everything in between. Educators and students share their short elevator pitch size stories to raise your awareness of everything that is going on here at Catlin Gable School. About a year ago, on May 3rd, 2019, the inaugural episode of Elevate was launched with a conversation about the treehouse that was built from scratch through the ideas and vision of beginning school students. For this 30th episode, I wanted to branch out beyond the Catlin School community and talk to an educator whose research, writing, and teaching invites us to think about the current crisis as an opportunity to rebuild learning experiences based on a world in flux and from ideas and visions that put students at the center. I was introduced to the work of Sharon Ravitch, professor of practice at the University of Pennsylvania's Graduate School of Education, through an article she wrote called Flux Pedagogy, Transforming Teaching and Leading Through Coronavirus. The idea of flux pedagogy and its implications for how we approach learning moving forward takes center stage in this insightful conversation. While the past 29 episodes have focused on stories from inside the Catlin Gable community, having a chance to listen to voices beyond our community gives us all the opportunity to step back and remember that we are just a single living branch of a larger educational tree. Hi, I'm Sharon Ravitch. I'm faculty at the Graduate School of Education at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. And I am an applied methodologist. I do qualitative research in schools and districts. And I also uh, am really interested in teacher and principal professional development broadly around critical inclusivity and now specifically as that pertains to what's going on with COVID. And so um, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much, Rob, for reaching out to me upon reading the Flux Pedagogy article that I wrote. Um, And I'm delighted to talk about it because what I found when I've been doing professional development with principals and teachers, also school counselors and folks in um, community colleges and four-year colleges, that um, people are really... As, as you and I are, they're in this moment of radical flux. The world is in a moment of radical flux. And by radical flux specifically, I not only mean um, that we've been sent home with shelter in place orders, but a radical flux that our normal routines and rituals and ways of being in the world are completely upset and in disequilibrium. And there is no end date to that. 
And so radical flux from my perspective is not only about what's going on right now, but it's about the fact that we have no finite sense of when things will be rearranged in a way that feels more like a new version of things that I don't say a new normal because I don't believe in a new normal, but a new version of things that can really help us to move forward with possibility relationships intact and connection and all of that. Um, and so when I started thinking about flux pedagogy, I was actually, um, a mentor in residence for Sage Publications. They had me doing blog posts for the month of March. So this predated what was going, you know, when we all were told in the first week of March to shelter in place. And what they asked me to really write about um, in general was frameworks for healthy teaching, learning, and leading. And then when COVID happened and we all were sent home, suddenly that became a request for, could you just write something about what you were going to write, but for this moment? And as I started to write and started to think and talk with the teachers and school principals that I work with weekly, what I started to realize is that there are a number of existing frameworks that have really moved the dial on things like racial literacy, brave space, what I'm calling brave space leadership, but this notion from Arayo and Clemens of brave spaces over safe spaces and, and norm setting as groups. Inquiry stance as a broad framework for everything else, which is really largely about shifting and sharing power and really re-examining who's a knower and why do we even value knowing over values or feelings, which is a very Western way of looking at things. And so I started to look at, well, inquiry stance would be an interesting framework to think about this moment because it's a moment where we and our students have to create not only new rhythms, but we have to humanize each other in a very different way. We're, we're teaching and learning from our homes. We are all in crisis. And very importantly, and this is a major note of the framework, we are all in a place of trauma right now. Our own trauma, right? Pandemics are traumatic. Um, the trauma of seeing people around us, God forbid, you know, getting sick or dying, and also the fear of that is trauma and vicarious trauma. So with the teachers and principals and superintendents with whom I work, they're ingesting the trauma of the students and families and communities and other people in the schooling system who they know, um, this this moment of, of radical flux of pandemic crisis will be crushing for some of the families that they teach and at the very least enormously problematic in ways that are considerably um, more dire than their own. And so that's where the vicarious trauma piece comes in and vicarious trauma and then underneath it getting feedback on the need for radical compassion and radical self-care in relationship. And so those are just some of the frameworks, but this is really where it came from that here's a framework for trauma. Here's a framework for realizing how to humanize pedagogy in these moments and how to rethink my power in the ways that I want to also be a learner from my students. Racial literacy is about identity related stress and really understanding how to conceptual, how to even conceptualize that. If we think about like cognitive behavioral health, naming anxiety creates a different and more empowered relationship to anxiety. Same thing with racialized or identity related stress more broadly. Naming it really shifts your relationship to it. And so helping people to name 
their own identity-related stress, how COVID lands into and shapes that. And then for our students, really understanding that their social identities are different than our social identities, that their communities, both perhaps their communities, meaning family or where they grew up or live now, and also communities, meaning the communities that they serve if they're practitioners. Um, And so really thinking about the identity-based stress in those communities, the COVID-related identity-based stress of those communities and how stresses of this moment are compounded the farther we get from um, centers of gravity and centers of power, right? So if you're a not white, not middle class, not man, you're farther away from those grand narratives and those locations of power. And so these are the ways I've been thinking about um, and then the the other lever, or the other node of the, or the other dimension, I should say, of the framework is responsive, emergent design, active learning, right? And that is important always. But in this moment where a lot of educators are shifting to online, we could just get lost in the routines and transactional parts of we all got on and the software worked and it's okay and the sound. And, and we have to remember that as the educator and the leader in the room, we're responsible to provide the structure, the support, and the inspiration for and with our students. I mean, we can co-construct the inspiration with them, but we have to provide structure with flexibility and humanity, a humanizing pedagogy. And we also have to provide um, or co-construct, but really lead that co-construction of the tone and the mood and, you know, positive affect in our classes. It's really important that students of all ages from, you know, first grade through or pre-K through um, postgraduate, you know, postdoctoral experiences, everyone needs support right now. And so thinking about support as a reciprocal exchange really becomes an important part of flux pedagogy right now, as does sort of shifting what's the relationship between accountability on the one hand, we need to hold high standards. People, we can't opportunity cost students out of the knowledges and information that they need to advance. At the same time, everything's changed. And our students like us, you know, they need um, flexibility and they need curiosity rather than judgment about what's going on that's making perhaps doing an assignment difficult for them. Um, And they need suggestions and offerings for inspiration, for calm. You know, racial literacy and identity-related stress work is really about breath, noticing how you're feeling, being curious rather than judgmental, and doing that in pedagogical educational communities. Um, to name how we're feeling inside and be able to hear with and from others through a variety of different techniques, how they're feeling. Um, so yeah, I, I going to jump in there for a second. Um, so you were talking that there's a lot going on there. You have kind of this broad, broad approach to, to dealing with um, not just education, but this, this idea of where, where we are right now. Um, Many teachers that I've talked to or that I'm hearing from, and I think a lot of people in general, we're right now moving into this place where um, there's a lot of feelings of like, oh, we're really in this for a long period Mm -hmm. of time. First few weeks really felt like, okay, we can do all these technical things that you were talking about, like Zoom's working, it's not working, there's a Zoom bomber coming in, you know, all of those pieces that 
are kind of like a little bit busy work to get things up and running. Um, but it really seems like now that there's this almost kind of depressive feeling of like, oh, this is who knows where this is going. And I don't know how long I can last with this. What what do you suggest or what have you been talking to teachers about? Like, what are some first steps when you're kind of entering into this new phase of what we're all experiencing um, that can be supportive both for teachers, but also allow them to maybe think about this kind of flux and, and making changes um, that maybe they don't feel comfortable doing. Yeah. So that's really so important. And I, one of the things that I think about is, you know, frameworks for expectation management that for, really from the management world and my work in that world, where it really is about, but, uh, you know, I see this in, in teacher education as well, helping new teachers, for example, to expect that their whole first year is going to be fairly stressful. They're going to feel behind the eight ball most of the year. They're not going to feel their most powerful <laughs> or their most agentic or effective their first year, right? And we know this. We have a lot of research. Our teacher ed programs around the country um, have, have been based in large measure around this research. But at the same time, that's the same kind of mindset we need for right now, right? So if you're a new teacher and every teacher was a new teacher, every leader was a new teacher maybe, but definitely a new leader, um, you know, then you can rely on the fact that there have been periods in your lives that were flux where you did not know. Now everyone else around you wasn't also in flux, but you were. Um, and I would go back to those times and think about how that went not judgmentally, but really curiously, how did it go for me when I was in this first year of teaching? Or you could think about lots of different experiences in teaching where there was a suspended period of time where there was an unknown, if you would be successful, if you knew what you were doing, if you're going to keep your job, you know, all the kinds of things that actually people are really worrying about right now. In a certain sense, you're a new teacher again, and this is year one. And for me, mm. that's the mindset that teachers need. You're a new teacher. It's year one. Is that quote unquote fair, given that, you know, lots of teachers have been working for lots of years? Pandemics aren't fair, you know? So all of us in all of our jobs around the world are dealing with lots of unfairness. Should teachers be paid more? Yes. Of course, my argument would be that there should be bonuses and different things. Of course, right? Um, whatever those look like. But just as a basic mindset, from my perspective, a basic mindset of I am a first year teacher again. And again, I relate that to this inquiry stance, this, this learning stance of being a teacher, principal, superintendent, whatever your role is as an educator, you're learning new skills. And just like if you were being a new teacher, learning how to ski, zip lining for the first time, there are ways that you need to engage in supportive self-talk and framing of the situation. So, right, when we're new at something, we ask lots of questions, right? And we feel entitled to ask those questions because we're new. Um, and the ecosystem is, is messaging to us to ask, well, if it's a good ecosystem, it's messaging to us to ask those questions, right? And right now, I think what's happening is because we've all gone inwards physically, I think a lot of us are going inwards in other ways because the communication pathways aren't there yet. And so people are like, making sense of this on our own. And then as it lands into our professional lives and for teachers specifically, you know, the question becomes, wait, what? 
uh, it's not just I'm trying this on for a few weeks as a bridge and so, okay, if I don't do it perfectly, it's only a few weeks and it's a bridge. This might be like into the summer. This might be into the early fall. Um, and my answer is put on your new teacher hat. And, and in a school system, it's the leader's responsibility to message that to everyone. We are all, I'm a new leader and you are new teachers. And, and, and to message that to students because they're new students, right? Mm. Everyone is doing this differently. We are all doing what we do very differently. And that kind of, I mean, really it's like Carol Dweck's, which I kept thinking about whether I should put this in flux pedagogy. I mentioned growth mindset in one sentence, but it really is this notion of a growth mindset about teaching. And I think the the framing of it as I'm a new teacher, I'm a new principal, I'm a new student, I think that language can be important to ourselves to remind ourselves to go into learning mode and, and to understand that we need support, that we need relational supports. We need colleagues who we talk to, who we share struggles and triumphs, great ideas with. You know, we should create for our school whatever thing that would be easy for people to look at and access, what are some things that are working? What are some conversation starters to help students share some of their COVID experiences are you using? Um, both so we're not duplicative, but also so that we don't, everyone doesn't have to reinvent the wheel. So th right. these are the kinds of things that, that I'm thinking about in a more systematic way for teachers right now to really think about how can schools create and, and districts create the environments that teachers need um, as if they were new teachers. We know how many support programs there are for new teachers. Um, we know the research on how hard new teaching is. And I think we need to lean into that pretty, pretty heavily right now and really help teachers understand that um, their concerns are very real and it has nothing to do with their professionalism not to know how to do this. They did; It wasn't part of their job description a month ago. And so, you know, feeling comfortable, um, really asking for help, even myself, for example. So, you know, I always considered myself a Luddite. I always had my teaching assistants in a higher ed setting, take care of our Canvas site. I just tried to stay as far away from technology as humanly possible because honestly, it just scares me. So I thought I didn't like it. So now with all of this, I basically made an appointment with my IT person and he walked me through all the technology I needed. And I felt embarrassed at first. And then I thought, why are you... What? Why would you be embarrassed? Why would you know this stuff? And I think some of that is giving ourselves grace to know that everything has shifted and none of us signed on for this. We didn't sign on for it. Our students and their families didn't sign on for it. And it requires of us to develop new skills um, in the moment. And never before have we had so many resources accessible to us to do these things, right? Even if you don't have an IT guy, there are ample YouTube videos that can teach you how to do everything you need to do on BlueJeans or Zoom or Canvas. And, you know, I'm suggesting to teachers and principals do that on your weekend. Take a look at these things ahead of time before you need them because you, you don't want the technology to be stressing you out. What you already do is stressful enough. And so I think making decisions like that about which things could I just sort of proactively do on my own so that I'm not learning it in front of students, you know, and those are things colleagues can do with each other, you know, teach each other these things online. And so I think part of this is about creating 
like flex pedagogy communities of practice or people call them whatever they want, you know, in on site, but communities of practice around how, how teaching and teachers um, need to shift and build into this moment so that things are resonant and useful um, and so that everyone is getting the support they need. Um, so when you think about a, a teacher who is, you know, been teaching for a long time and you, you're asking them or you're suggesting be this, this first year teacher, I think that's a great way to approach it. I think it's really helpful for a school to be able to think that way. And, um, you know, even have, you know, students think that way that they're kind of new students as well. Yeah. Um, but when you have, uh, well, two, two questions I'm wondering about. What, what do you say to the, the teacher who is like, well, I don't, I don't want to let the students know that because they're going through all this trauma. They need to feel that I'm kind of in control of the situation. Um, would you suggest having more frank and open conversations with students about that experience you are having as a teacher and saying, oh, this is really hard for me? Um, or um, do you have some other ideas about that? Yeah, it's interesting. Other... Oh, go ahead. Do you want me to answer? No. The... Yeah, go for it. And then I'll, I'll ask the next question after. Okay. So, it you know, what's interesting about your question about, you know, if there are teachers who have been teaching for a while and perhaps, um, or, even, or even newer teachers, but who, their feeling or their thought or their belief is that students shouldn't know that they're struggling. So here's what I'm going to say. Students know when their teachers are struggling, whether the teachers think students know it or not, right? <laughs> so that's, yeah, yeah. A non, that's, that's a non-issue. If you're struggling with the technology in your life, with anything else, students might not name it, but they vibe it out. So I would say name it to tame it. You know, I mean, I'll give an example, you know, I'm on a medication that makes me um, have some memory issues. And for a couple of years when I started taking it, I did all these things in class. I was so stressed out. And then finally, at the beginning of every semester now, I just tell my students, listen, I'm on this medication. And sometimes I will be in the middle of answering you and I will forget what I'm saying. Can you remind Mm -hmm. me when that happens? It's a non-issue now. And it used to be there was like so much around it for me. And then I would play that out. And so I think what I would say to that is name it to tame it. Tell you don't have to, you know, say it in an anxious way. I think my whole thing that I try to teach folks, especially I, I work with a lot of younger women, and I say, you know, stand in your power um, with compassion and with authority. Right. So I can say that I'm struggling with technology without giving away any power. It's the way that I do it or you do it or anyone does it. And so that's my answer to teachers. You can locate yourself as a knower, as a non-knower, as a learner, as a any of those things. And you can do that in a way that not only will not make you seem weak or vulnerable in the negative sense of that term. I think that kind of vulnerability is often really positive as long as there are boundaries. what I would say is you're modeling something tremendous for your students to do that. You're knowing yourself as a learner. You're naming that, not in an impositional way. You're not saying, so now y'all need to help me. Um, You're really doing it in a way that is know thyself, name it, 
and move on. And so I would say to teachers, and I've said this to the teachers I'm working with, I think you can feel very comfortable saying, um, this might be a struggle for me at times. So, you know, da, 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 whatever the note that they would like to make is. So the second part of my question, um, was, you know, all of us are dealing with this, um, bit of trauma in some way or another. Uh, one, one of the things that, um, I know students are really experiencing from conversations that I had with them last year or last week, I did a podcast with six kids in, That's awesome. in, the, in the upper school of our school. That's wonderful. And the big piece that were, was really difficult for them, um, it, it's really turning out to be that lack of any kind of contact and the struggle they're having with that. And I, and it almost feels like that's becoming a barrier in many ways to learning mm -hmm. it's becoming, it feels so ominous and overwhelming um, that even students who are normally could probably muscle through these kind of experiences. There's a one student who in particular, just, he loves school so much and he's Aww. the kind of kid who will make, he'll make school work no matter what. Um, he basically was like, I hate this. Yeah. And you know, there's not going to be, no matter what you say, that experience is not going to be available. Yeah. What do you, what do you suggest, um, schools be, you know, should be doing or teachers can be doing to deal with that particular piece? I, I, have actually, I really appreciate your question about this question about students. Um, and I've been actually doing a lot of reading about this because I work with so many teachers and I'm the mother of two teenagers. And so what I'll say is a few things. First of all, I think that teenagers, I, I, not teenagers, I'm sorry. I think that youth's lives are more changed than adults' lives, actually. If you really think about, like when I think about my two sons and myself, my life is actually not as changed as theirs, right? My friends and I always talked on the phone and rarely had time to see each other. My work life can continue unabated and the social piece of it was important, but not central, right? For kids, their lives are so radically, radically altered that from my perspective, anything we do has to lead with that understanding. Because what I think is happening right now, at least what I'm hearing from teachers and parents and from a fair amount of high schoolers who I do research with, is that teachers, you know, they nod to like, oh, how are you and compassion, but nothing else has changed, right? And so that there's this way in which students are like, we know you care about us, but you're not changing anything. And we feel right. like everything is changed and changing. And so I think that there's a disjuncture between adults and, and young people right now because young people are stressing adults out right now, right? It's not their fault, but they are, right? We can't do our jobs, whether you know we have a different job or our job is teaching or educating, leading, right? And so I think that it's this double-edged sword of, first of all, their lives are changed more than ours. And second of all, there's a lot of talk about how children are inconveniencing adults. There's a kind mm. of negative societal trope right now. And I think kids are ingesting that. Um, and I think that there's a kind of, um, on top of the trauma of 
COVID, I think there's a low key, maybe not so low key, definitization going on of young people. And we need to deal with that. And from my perspective, teachers need to interrupt um, a vibe of like, I'm doing you a favor, I'm traumatized, and they need to, they, you can feel that way as a teacher. It's not appropriate, of course, to share that with your students um, beyond, you can share feelings, but I think in a, in a boundaried way, you know, teachers really do need to take on that added responsibility and that's it, you know, that's it. Healthcare workers are taking on added responsibilities. University professors are taking on added responsibilities and teachers need to take on added responsibilities. And that's just it. And people are shocked to hear me say that because I'm always the voice for like support teachers more, respect teachers more, professionalize teaching more, pay them more. Did it? I am always that voice. And right now I'm still that voice. And I'm also saying that teachers need to figure it out um, just like everyone else. And educational leaders need to quadruple down on supporting teachers right now. And that's really the answer, right? Because teachers need to quadruple down on supporting students. And they can't do that from a place that doesn't offer them a considerably increased and amplified range of supports that they need, right? So everybody needs more support. And then the ed leader will say, but what about me, right? Everyone is feeling that way. And it is our collective responsibility to take care of our children. Um, yeah. You know. one, of the things, one of the things I was thinking about this weekend, you know, there's these new bills being passed in Congress for funding. I realized nobody, you know, people are talking about small businesses and big businesses and individuals. And I realized, and hospitals, um, you know, finally, you know, there's some funding going to be allocated to, to people working in medical fields. I realized there's no conversation about education in any of that. And that, you know, there's suddenly all these families, sure, they, they might have lost their jobs, but now there's this added pressure of being suddenly the teacher of your, your child, where you normally, you know, your kid goes off for six hours, seven hours, eight hours, and you can kind of do your thing. Right. And it really dawned on me that, wow, there's no national conversation on how to make the educational system work for all these kids that some are, you know, in really situations where the, they're like, well, good luck. Exactly. You know, we, can't, we can't do anything. I'm at a school that I feel like fortunate that we were on top of things. We're doing a really solid job of, of doing what we can yeah. and, and providing that support. Do you hear any, I mean, that's from my lens. Do you hear any conversations nationally around uh, you know, more support for educators or teachers? Well, it's, it's, it's so interesting to hear you say that. And I'm, I'm heartened to hear you say that because I've been a part of a group of teacher educators really interested in, in, in centralizing and prioritizing a conversation of um, teachers as frontline workers. And the, I want to be careful with that language, right? Because frontline worker really means you're putting yourself in actual physical harm's way. And certainly right now, teachers are not. They may be, right? Um, but I would argue in a certain way, teachers are frontline workers emotionally. They're doing the emotional labor for the world. You know, in a U.S., right, teachers right now, teachers and school counselors um, and education staff more broadly and assistant principals and um, 
principals and heads of school and assistant heads of school, right? All educators really um, are frontline workers right now in terms of the emotional caregiving and nurturance and um, support and scaffolding that they're providing for youth. And so from my perspective and from the perspectives of a bunch of my colleagues and you, so maybe you'll join us in this in this um, movement that we are trying to support in really saying, hey, teachers are interfacing with the children of our country every day. We can think more intentionally about their care and support. We can also think more intentionally about what are the horizontals that our children need to be hearing right now, right? All children right now should be learning about growth mindset. All children right now should be learning about um, stress management, right? There are certain things that the national conversation is both about professionalizing and honoring the incredible sacrifice and work of teachers always. And in these moments where it's like, hey, y'all go back, start teaching, that's it, you know? And at the same time, creates a conversation about well, why is we're just kind of having every teacher or maybe by school or by district reinvent the scripts of things to say to students? You know, we could create that, you know, like think about if we actually had a secretary of education who actually knew anything about education and was good, you know, we could actually create a national discourse right now that could be, you know, what do we need to be teaching our students? How, what are the best resiliency frameworks? You know, Angela Duckworth's Character Lab has created great material on on grit and youth. You know, that's just one example. There's so many different examples. And so teachers would then not all have to keep, and schools, principals, reinventing the wheel, reinventing the wheel. There would be national discourse of a variety of sorts. And so I think that's really important. And part of that, the importance of a, that national discourse is, again, you know, look at what has happened in terms of the professionalization of healthcare workers other than doctors, other than doctors, the professionalization of all other healthcare workers and the professionalization of other service industry workers, trash, uh, people who pick up trash, um, people, who, um, mail carriers, uh, you know, lots of folks who are really being elevated in society's eyes right now, as they should. Where, and I agree with you, where are teachers here? Teachers are everything, you know? And so I do think that there are opportunities right now for us to be thinking, those of us who have the privilege um, of being able to think about these things like me, right, need to be thinking about these things for teachers because we need to be really um, building up supports. And I do know that the American Federation of Teachers is thinking about these issues right now. And that might be a good place for people to sort of ongoingly check in with what they're thinking about and generating for teachers. And another really amazing resource that I think districts and schools and teachers themselves can tap into is Teachers Without Borders. You know, because, and I happen to be very involved with Teachers Without Borders. And one of the interesting things about Teachers Without Borders is, you know, these teaching programs that operate in conflict impacted and crisis impacted countries, they do flux pedagogy mm. in one, in, you know, in one, way or another they're doing, you know, and so those participatory emergent design, you know, pedagogies and methodologies that they're using, they work for these kinds of environments. And so, right. you know, we could also be really sharing out all of those kinds of 
methods. I think we need a kind of national professional development curricular development portal um, that people can really contribute to. And it may be that, like most things, you know, teachers end up organizing this themselves because they know what they need. You know, the whole teacher research movement is really about you know, teachers are the generators of, of educational knowledge because they are the teachers and leaders who are in schools are the ones who right. know. So I think that, you know, that national um, push could really be about support and structure also for teachers and educators more broadly. Great. I mean, that's, that's really helpful to hear. I think we lose sight of, you know, we're kind of in our homes and we lose yeah. sight of a larger picture of where we can go. So my last question is really about moving forward. You know, want to, want to leave this on, there's a lot of hope in what you're saying. Absolutely. I feel like there's a lot of hope there. Um, and I appreciate the the fact that you were saying, you know, there's not really, we're not going to return to a new normal that we don't right. want to go there. Um, what are the lessons do you think that are really important um, you know, we are going to end up back in classrooms and it could look different for months or years or, you know, we're all kind of in this uncertain place. Um, as we do think about moving forward, though, are there key components that are really kind of rat will need to have us think more radically about we can't go back to that way of doing things. You know, this is an opportunity to really reevaluate all the all the little things were like well, well if we were in a perfect situation you know we let this happen right right right, right. Are, yeah yeah but are there things happening now in terms of under understanding of what kids need where the world is where education is that this is a pivotal moment that says we're we need to radically change this there needs to be this kind of flux thinking what are the components of flux th thinking that need to be like a hundred percent in from now on, they should have been in always, but yeah. that now this is an opportunity to see, like, we really need this. Yeah. First of all, I, I appreciate so much about, about your question. And I'll start with, with um, where you started with this concept of normal. So I write a lot in the in this revised piece of Flux Pedagogy that um, if, if viewers are interested, it's coming out this week at, in Penn, the Penn Graduate School of Education, Penn GSE. We have a journal, um, Perspectives in Urban Education, and it will be coming out this week there. Um, and I, I will put that in the, the link of the description. Oh, awesome. Awesome. People can get that. Thank you. So, so I write in Flux Pedagogy about this concept of there's not a new normal coming. But then I take it farther to answer your question. And I say, it's not just that there's not a new normal coming in the sense that in the foreseeable future, there's change. That's all we can know there will be right now is change. Um, but really importantly, I think the flux pedagogy piece, from my perspective, in part, is really about understanding um, it's not just that there's not going to be a new normal and that we have to, that's the case. So we need to figure out how to re rearrange ourselves around that concept, right? So wishing for a new normal, bemoaning that, you know, a new normal or not new normal, it's constant flux and change. From my perspective, again, the best thing we can do is expect change and figure out if that makes us anxious, what 
what is reverberating and making us anxious and deal with that rather than the fact that we don't know what's going to happen in the next couple of months. None of us do. Those of us who are faring better in this, first of all, have more privileges. And second of all, within the privileges have more privileges often of um, having the resources to engage in our own mental health development um, and working on our stress. Some people do that through meditation. Some people do that through therapy. Some people do that through yoga. Some people do that through painting. Some people do that through running, right? But really, I think part of what's so important right now is that we need to figure out in these moments what is good and healthy rather than what is normal or what was before, what was after. So that's one piece of it. I think the more maybe substantive piece of it, the other piece of it is also that this notion of normal, I think the key to the future is in this concept of the of normal or the old normal. The old normal was not working, right? The old normal was tax-based funding for schools, which belies a true democracy. The old normal was um, push out of black and brown and indigenous students at very high rates um, and disrespect and marginalization of them and their voices and their communities and their home languages and, and Latinx students as well and immigrant students. You know, so the, the old quote unquote normal, there's nothing, you know, this concept of normal is it's a white dominant concept. It's actually, it, the concept of normal is the first thing we should attend to as we think about new normal or not, because normal is a mirage. Normal is a way to say there's a center. And guess who the center is? Guess who? White men, again, cis men. And, you know, from my perspective, <laughs> that's, that is nothing to return to. It benefited my own children as white young men who are heavily resourced, but it doesn't benefit most people. And so my perspective is we have to understand that this concept of normal serves uh, a white dominant mode of schooling that's socially reproductive, that is um, inhospitable to most learning styles, and that teaches to those who learn the easiest and the the best, quote unquote, in terms of like efficiency and ease, which are all the wrong metrics, right? You know, the emotional multiple intelligences models and the ways that we need more of that in our schools. So where do we begin? And where we begin, I think, is by saying before we try to return back there, let's do a good assessment of there, where we were. Um, and everyone's like, but we're in crisis, right? There's actually never a better time to restructure things than in crisis, not only because there's collective vulnerability, um, but because usually what ends up happening is um, the, the collective vulnerability precipitates an openness to change. And so from my perspective, at the national level, at the state level, at the local level, at the school level, everyone can be thinking about what are the things we don't want to build back with? What are some of the de facto policies or holdover mindsets or punitive policies that for people? for teachers, families, and students, right, that might be reconceptualized, that might be unlearned so that we can relearn into the future. And in fact, it was you, Rob, who gave me um, Arundhati Roy's The Pandemic is a Portal article from the Financial Times. And I think her framing of this is precisely that. We can go into this new moment with old ideas and old models and things we know needed improvement, 
whatever we go in with, it's going to require a lot of effort to rebuild now. We might as well do it right. And so what I think is we need to have um, wellsprings of, of communities of practice coming up around this. And then we need to kind of heat map it and figure out how we turn that into a national movement. I think this is precisely the moment. There are a lot of folks where I am who are considered, you know, sort of the, um, I don't know, the experts in the field, so to speak. And, you know, it's just so clear from where we sit that we need to roll up our sleeves and use our um, our knowledge and skills for for our public schooling system, for our private schooling system, for our independent schooling system. Um, and so from my perspective, we want to disrupt the concept of normal as an old state of being, and also as a way that we think of people in groups. Um, and when we build back, you know, there can't be, um, you know, a white cis male middle class center, right? We just are going to have to build back with different I mean, it just has to look different from the beginning, right? Different people sitting at the table and, and ideas hybridizing in new ways. Um, obviously, we need to get rid of Betsy DeVos for that to happen, and we need a new regime. But the thing is, in the meantime, there is so much we can do. There is so much we can do to support and change, um, support and change for students, for teachers, for principals, for school counselors, for parents, you know. The, my kids go to a high school called the Science Leadership Academy in Philadelphia. And the principal, Chris Lehman, is this, he's just a spectacular leader. I would call, I would give him the Flux Pedagogy Leadership Award. And one of the reasons is his communication to parents is so incredibly structured, focused, and loving. And he always gives you an idea for something you can talk about with your kids that day in a way that actually might work. Uh, depending on mm. your kid, you know? And so it's things like that, watching these amazing leaders who really step up um, and and seeing how they're stepping up, I think is, is and, and emulating them is something that we can all be doing right now. And I think that that diffusion effect of teachers as leaders and educational leaders taking on the mantle of this kind of unlearning to relearn and build back more critically and better. Uh, to me, it's it's so hopeful and exciting. You know, this moment is awful. There's no question. But the silver linings abound. We can create so much out of this moment. And I think for our own collective sense of agency as educators, teachers, principals, you know, we have to find active ways, not more Zoom calls, right? But really active ways to Definitely. nourish ourselves and to connect with each other and to really think about this moment so that it it could pass us by so easily because we're all so stressed and tired, you know? And it's like, we just, let's just get kids in school in September. But at the same time, if we really think about it, how much more work is it if we have to rebuild anyway to rebuild things back learning from our wisdom of practice in the past. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Aaron, for, for joining me um, and having this conversation. My I feel like I could, I feel like we could sit and I definitely would love to talk with you more. Me too. And this was awesome. And I love that you talk to students. I feel like I have been looking for podcasts with students. I'm certainly going to check yours out. 
Thank you for doing that. I think we need to be hearing more students' voices. So I appreciate so much that um, I could be a part of your community thinking about these issues. And I wish you all goodness and health and, and wellness. And thank Good. you, Rob. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll be in touch and maybe bring you on again. Awesome. Maybe when it. this is all over and reflect Oh, on my it. gosh. Oh, my God. That would be really amazing. I would love that, really, to look back and be like, all right, what happened a year ago <laughs> or six months yeah. ago or whenever? Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode of Elevate. If you have questions, ideas, or want to share your story, please send us an email. Elevate at catlin.edu. Come to far, to the